My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. It's New Year's Day, and I'll start the year off with... Kind of a weird question. What do you think it would be like to be around for your own funeral? Think about it. Like to see your family and friends gather and share all their memories of you, to absorb all that love, to know that you won't be forgotten, and also, you know, frankly, to see if, you know, so-and-so actually shows up. That's kind of the premise of Elizabeth Acevedo's new book called Family Lore. Elizabeth is the award-winning author behind the book The Poet X, which won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature. She's also a former slam poet champion. But this is the first time Elizabeth has written a book uh, for what we'll call them grown-up readers. Family lore is not just about a living wake. It's about a close-knit Dominican-American family, specifically first- and second-generation women who now live in and around New York City. And the family's matriarch, Flora, announces out of the blue that she wants a, a living wake for herself. But here's the catch. Like most of the other women in the family, Flora has a magical gift, and hers is that she knows when someone is going to die. So that changes the stakes of a living wake a little bit. Elizabeth Acevedo joined me to talk about family lore. And as we were getting going, she was telling me why she got so interested in the idea of a living wake. She said something that I had to follow up on. Here's our conversation. Did you tell me that you have been thinking about your funeral since you were a kid? <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. I don't know what? what that means about me. You're the first person I've admitted this to, Tom. But I, I would just like lay at night and be like, who would come and what would they say? And, <laughs> you know, what would people wear? So it it didn't feel too unusual for me to to find ways into this novel. <laughs> I understand that, though. You know, there is something nice about it, you know. There is something. I heard the great comedian John Mulaney talk about that one time. The idea yeah. that he was he loves attention so much that when he found out he wouldn't be able to be at the one place <laughs> he gets the most attention, it was heartbreaking for him. <laughs> no, I think that's entirely it. And when you're a kid and you're like, no one loves me, you're like, however, if I had a funeral, I bet you <laughs> it would all declare love. <laughs> um, before we keep going with the plot here, I, I do want to talk sort of about the 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 shift for you in, in what you're writing about. I mean, as I mentioned in the introduction, that you're, you're really well known now for novels for young adults. This is uh, your first one for, for grown-ups, we'll say, fully grown-up adults and for older readers. Was that an intentional shift on your part? It was intentional. I mean, this story had been brewing for a while, maybe not the living wake aspect, but wanting to talk about, um, you know, these interconnected women. And I just knew that while my young adult work kind of forces me to look backward at who I was as my younger self. This book had a a reaching forward that just was going to have to be for a more mature audience. And there would be subject matter that was for a more mature audience. And, and I didn't want to keep running from this, this book. It felt like it was time. Like themes about mortality and, and family and, and secrets. These things are more mm-hmm. easily accessible to you when you don't have to think about the sensibilities of younger readers? 
Yeah. And especially when we're talking about secrets or shame or or um, generations of silence and how we learn silence and what it does to our ability to n- not necessarily feel known by the people who love us most. Like it just felt like um, these were themes that were really layered and um, far reaching. And uh, the pacing, I think, was going to have to be a little slower. The the how intricately I wanted to look at how shame is passed down, I, I knew might not work for a 13 year old who maybe doesn't have the kinds of life experiences to to bring to the text to really allow for the full richness of what I hope would come with this story. At the heart of your book are four older sisters. Can you tell me about them? Yeah, so we have um, Matilde, who is the eldest and doesn't have any magic that she knows of. Um, And then we have Flor, who is the sister that can see death. We have Pastora, who is known as not having any silk on her tongue. Um, And she can tell whether or not you are um, telling the truth about something. And then much younger, 20 years younger than almost all of these is Camila, who is um, the youngest and the often forgotten and and a, a, an herbalist, right? And I, I give their little bits of magic because I think it um, it was fun to come up with those quirks, but, but they're basically these four women who all leave the Dominican Republic in varying moments um, and have to make a way for themselves uh, as they're also dealing with the kinds of women that they are and are not and how they do or don't love each other and how they were each mothered differently by by their parent. Was there something interesting to you about about writing uh, um, writing these older women? These are senior women? So I come from a pretty large family. My mom is one of 15 and she's one of nine sisters. And I just remember always being amazed by the different sisters' stories Um, And now as they're getting older, you know, they're less myth. Like when I was little, it was like this aunt once did this and this aunt once did that. And now they just feel a lot more human. And I realized that the the issues that I write about when I'm writing for teens or when I'm writing poetry for more contemporary audience are they not so far from some of the issues that my my aunts and my mom at 70 are dealing with. And, And especially if we're talking about feeling loved and how to love and like, you know, I still have life left, but but I feel like maybe not a lot. What do I do with the time I have left? We'll be right back. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, here, there and everywhere. Listen to season two of McCartney, A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. feel like when people get older, the 
credits start to roll and there is this sense of closure and every single loose end in their life has mm-hmm. been tied up. But you're saying that you, you, you've started to realize now that your family has become sort of less mythical and more real to you, that those feelings don't really go away. Oh, my God, Tom, you said that way better than I could. But yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm very affordable, by the way. If you <laughs> <need me. laughs> Come on, tour with me. <laughs> no, I, that's precisely it. You know, I think you, you think of someone in their 70s and you imagine, ah, oh, they've lived a lot of life. They're, you know, probably settled. But but it was amazing to watch women in my family specifically be at odds with where they thought they should be and, and how familiar that felt, you know, post-graduating college. And you're kind of like, oh, I think I'm supposed to be here. Or, you know, I became a parent this year. And I remember thinking like, oh, I, like as a mom, this is what I should know or who I should be like that. We're always facing who we think we should be um, and that that doesn't necessarily stop at 70. And if you're 70 and you're in a terrible marriage and you don't know how to get out, but you're like, but none of my sisters are are unmarried and none of them are divorced. And like I should like that, that persistence of where you should be, I don't think ends necessarily because you've entered, you know, the latter half of your life. Um, and what does it mean to to think through what it would look like for someone who is staunchly entrenched in the way things should be to, to kind of burst forth from that? And I think each of the characters is in a moment in time where they have to reconsider who they have been and who they need to become regardless of the age that they're in. This narrative goes back and forth in time and in, and in location, too. It goes in between in time and also between the U.S. And the, and the Dominican Republic. And, you know, one thing that um, in, in this book and I think throughout a lot of your writing is um, you're very specific in the way you, you write about your culture. You know, the way you talk about idioms, the way you talk about magic, the way you talk about superstition, the t- way you talk about folklore. Um, I, I read this story and I, I know you've told it before, but I, I read it when I was getting ready for this interview and I just really loved it. Um, it's a story about when you were a teacher, um, and I think you discovered like the power of either specificity or the power of like being able to read, uh, see yourself in a book or see yourself in a story, and and what that can do in terms of getting a child interested in reading. Do you know the story I'm talking about? I think so. I was um, a school teacher at a, a school that was predominantly um, Latinx, seventy percent. I was the first teacher of Latinx descent to be um, a classroom teacher and not teaching an elective like um, Spanish or or gym, but teaching a core subject. I was teaching English language arts. Um, and a lot of my students weren't at grade level, which um, is, you know, just the tragedy of, of you know, the American school system. We, we, we fail our, our public schools often. And I had this one student who was amazing um, and kind of a smart ass and always had something slick to say. And I absolutely adored her. And she hated silent reading time. She wanted to do anything but but silent reading time. And I remember one day just asking her, like, what can I get you? Because I'd given her everything that was exciting. And I, I'll date, you know, my time then, but it was Divergent and Hunger Games and Twilight and all of these books that were becoming movies that all of the other kids seemed to love. And this kiddo just looked at me and was like, you know, none of these books are about us. They don't sound like us. They don't, you know, and she didn't explicitly say like, they're not from the same culture. They're not from the same race, but just this, like, I don't care about sparkly vampires, right? I don't care about kids killing each other for food. Like, that's not what I'm, it's not what I want to read. 
Um, and I remember going out and like buying Walter Dean Myers and Julia Alvarez and Sandra Cisneros and just these authors that I thought might speak to this experience that she had mentioned being interested in. And when I tell you that within two weeks, she had read this entire pile of books that I had bought for her. You know, it it was amazing that this young person, it wasn't that she wasn't interested in reading. It was that the books that I had been giving her did not reflect the kind of reading she wanted to do. So does that inform your writing? I think it informed the early work that be, I, at that point, I didn't think of myself as at a, as a novelist. I was staunchly a poet and I didn't think I had the ability or wherewithal to write prose or to write fiction. And I think that young person looking at me and just saying, where are the books about us echoed how I had felt when I was her age. And I realized, you know, I, I've been waiting for someone else to write the stories and maybe it's me. And so I, I think it launched me in a different way towards a kind of writing I was too afraid to do. One of the things in, in, in this book is it, if these really, you know, um, geez, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the right language here, like candid or or frank discussions and descriptions of, again, like sexuality and desire from a woman's perspective. It's a big part of the book. Talk to me a little bit about that, about, about wanting to portray that, about m- making sure you got that part right. I think that... The ways that some women, particularly if you're from cultures where um, conservatism of of dress or of desire or of of sex are shielded and it's not discussed, um, learn about sex uh, often brings a lot of shame with it. And so in this book, it, it is about each of these women who have these magical abilities that are located in their bodies that are are ones that they feel um, intrinsically in their guts or in their throats or like in some capacity. Um, it's all about the magic of the body and how we celebrate the magic of the body. And for me, kind of dispelling the ways that that's you know, conversations around sex are had and what makes something a proper book or proper to talk about. Um, And just saying, I'm going to put it plainly on the page so that questions of desire are, are not questioned, at least not when it comes to the novel, right? When, when there is want you, it is clearly stated or it is um, identified on the page. And it's, it's not something that I have seen often in Dominican literature. I think we can be a culture that is very prim and proper when it comes to that, um, to the disservice, I think, of a lot of our our women who who may not always learn about it in in ways that um, are helpful. And they learn about it, I think, the ways that, you know, you learn about something when there's no, um, no guidance, right? It's just um, fumbling or, or figuring it out or with a deep sense of this is wrong that mm-hmm. I think can take so long to to shed. And so for me, maybe this book was a lot about, you know, hoping generations of, of future young women who are raised in that way. I have at least a text that um, is thinking through, you know, the push and pull of, you know, desire and, and that it's okay to discuss openly. You, I've, I've even heard that you you even sort of felt some of the prim improperness in, in that when you put out this book, you sort of had this realization <laughs> that you're, that the older members of your family, even they might read this. Oh, I'm still feeling that way. The book will get translated <laughs> in November. And I'm like, how do I just not tell them that it's been translated? <laughs> 
How do I know? Maybe they won't know. <laughs> maybe they, maybe they don't have to find out. They don't have to. Read I think I think I think so. That's that. You know, that's what I'm I'm sticking to. But no, I think for sure I, it. Um, there's a propriety that I know I'm going to have to face, and maybe this book was my pushing myself to just face it. Right, you can't run from from the beliefs you have because an older generation might want you to talk about it differently, or not talk about it at all. One of the other things that comes up in this book is how, even with very intimate and very close family members and very intimate and close family relationships, you still don't know. You still never know what secrets and things that people are are grappling with. Mm-hmm. Is there? I, I, I know this is not your young adult books, so I know there's not as much of a, a concern about lessons here. But I did wonder if there's a lesson in there about how, how how we treat one another. I think when I set out with this project, I was curious about the idea of ensemble truth-telling. Like when we want to know the truth of a family, when we say, tell me the family history, that if you have multiple members who think they know each other, but there's so many gaps in what they've told each other or how they... Um, understand each other, the the truth isn't as smooth or as easy as we imagine when we try to hold the concept of like a familial unit. Um, and, and that was really important to me that we can contain so many parts of ourselves and we we may not always be empathetic because we think we know, right? We make up stories of who people are. And then when we ask them, or when we just stop and listen, we realize, oh, there's something here that is at odds with who I imagined you to be. And I think that opening up of finding something new about someone maybe allows us to open up and share something new of ourselves. And so um, there's there's a lot of secrets and a lot of silence on the page, a lot of moments where a character will say something for an entire two paragraphs, and then it ends with, but she didn't say that, right? So this idea of how we hold so much back um, and how that doesn't allow people in in the ways we imagine uh, was something that I was really trying to to think through. And then the moments where characters can break through and really see each other, mm. um, what what does that closeness do and how do we now have a part of the story we didn't have before? My conversation with Elizabeth Acevedo, her novel Family Lore, is out now. And that's it for us today. The other conversation we put up today on the old podcast feed is one of our favorite episodes of the year, one of my favorite conversations I've ever really had in my entire life. Um, I had the incredible fortune, and believe you me, it's never lost on me how lucky I am. Um, I got to travel to London in England and to sit down across in a hotel room across from Mick Jagger, Mick Jagger from the Rolling Stones. And we had a lovely, a lovely chat. And if you've missed it, I feel like the CBC let everybody know about this conversation every 10 seconds or something like that. Like, I feel like in the middle of the news, they were like, oh yeah, and here's the softwood lumber prices. Also, Tom talked to Mick Jagger. Um, If you haven't listened to that interview somehow yet, uh, go check it out on our podcast feed. It's up there now. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.